anyway, we're doing this series, First Love, on the book of Revelation. Um, <clears throat> this will be uh, your, your third shot, your third installment of this series. And so I just wanted to give just a, a little bit of review for those of you maybe who've missed weeks or new, we're just going to um, talk a little bit about Revelation here. Uh, why do we read it? Why do we read the book of Revelation? Like I said a couple weeks ago, I'm always super intimidated and very confused by the book of Revelation. But why do we read it? Why bother? If it's confusing, why do I bother? Well, we don't have to go any further than the first verse of the first chapter of Revelation, which says, The purpose. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. So why is it important? Well, it's from Jesus Christ. And if it's a word from Jesus Christ, we better pay attention. Amen? Amen. Yeah, that's right. And it also says soon. It doesn't say sometime in the future. It says soon. It says soon. It means it's probably happening all around us as we're reading it. So we better pay attention to that as well. So what's our goal with this series? Our goal is that we're going to read, we're going to listen, and we're going to take heed. And we are not focusing on the whole prophetic portion of the book. Uh, we're going to focus exclusively on the messages to the churches. The first um, messages, those are seven churches. We talked about that before. And uh, in that, we're going to take what we call the obvious view, um, which basically says that these seven churches represent seven types of churches or seven conditions that churches will face during the church age, which is the age that we're living in today. So we're really trying to see how can we apply God's message to our lives today from these passages. So, today, we're going to talk about the church in Pergamum, which is a funny word. It's like I want to say Pergamum. So, hopefully I don't stumble over it here as I repeat that many times. But, like I said, we're going to read, we're going to listen and take heed, so we'll start with reading. And I'll just read this to you, um, these verses from Revelation chapter 2. It says, To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, these are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. And who's that? Jesus. That's right. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. So, there's a bunch of things we could talk about here. We could take a lot of time. I'm going to focus on just three things. And I thought maybe I would start with maybe the lightest one and... Work our way backwards to maybe the heaviest one. So the first question to ask is, um, what's the story with that white stone? Right? You ever read that? You go, we got a, a white stone and a name on it, and what in the world is going on? Well, there are many interpretations of what 
and scholars, historians think, what is the white stone? And there's a number of things it could be. I don't really know which one it exactly is. Um, one possibility is uh, in the Roman Empire, when people went on trial and they determined if you were innocent or guilty, they gave you a stone. And that stone was black if you were guilty or white if you were innocent. So it's entirely possible this was a reference to, hey, you are not, you're found not guilty. Um, Others suggest that these, uh, this stone is a reference back to Exodus 28, um, where the high priest had this whole sort of ceremonial breastplate he wore that had different colors and types of stones on it with names etched on them. That's a possibility. Others have suggested it's a reference to building materials or to diamonds or other things. Um, the one I like the most, and I suppose you have to maybe choose a little bit, um, I think it's just a simple good explanation, is that in these Roman times they would have contests, and the victor of a contest, a sporting contest or whatever, would be given a white stone. And that white stone actually became like a ticket to the after party, right? So there'd be parties and celebrations, and if you had that white stone, it was your admission ticket into the party. So I think you can see some of the parallels that might be there um, between becoming a believer in Christ and, and, and getting to spend eternity with him in heaven. It's a ticket in some ways for overcoming. Now, um, what about the name? You get a new name. I have no idea what that really means, perfectly honest with you. Um, but what do we know? We know that the Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit is in the process of renewing us from the inside out. Well, what do I mean? There's a couple of verses here. Colossians 3.10 says, We have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And also Romans 8.29 says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. And so the Bible tells us the Spirit, as we come into a relationship with Jesus, he is changing us and conforming us. And we are being renewed so doesn't it follow that at some point your name could also be renewed? Your name is probably the first thing you get in this life, and so maybe at the end you get a new one. Now, what would be an example in our world of taking on a new name? When do you ever take on a new name? So, someone said marriage? Yeah, that's good, right? That's probably the only one I can think of, unless you go to court and decide you want to be called world peace or something like that. I don't know why you'd want to do that. And when do we do that? Why do we do that? Why do women do that? Well... You take on a husband's name, it is tradition for sure, but it's also a way of showing that he has a headship and that you have a union with him when you get married. So possibly, one possibility would be that this new name on the stone is really the name of Jesus. And that as we enter into eternity and we come to the end of this life, it's entirely possible that this is a way of demonstrating that, ah, now we are fully united in submission to the headship of Jesus. So maybe that's it, maybe that's not sounds like a pretty awesome scenario to me. So, so that was the lighter point. Let's look at the, something that's maybe a little bit heavier in that passage. We'll go back to the, the verses from Revelation. It says, Though there are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So, who was Balaam? And who were the Nicolaitans? Well, we read about Balaam in the book of Numbers in the Old Testament. I'll just give you a very brief summary. We could probably talk for a long time about who he was. Um, but he essentially was a prophet. 
Um, and as the Israelites were sort of wrestling in their land and, and trying to maintain their land and fight against enemies, um, he showed Balak, who was a, a king of one of the enemy nations, he showed them, uh, he said, here's how you're going to defeat Israel. And he said, all right, I want, you should entice them, take your most beautiful women, and send them over to them, and that's going to lead them into sin, they're going to be distracted, and ultimately you can destroy them. And in some, to some extent, that is exactly what happens. Now, who were the Nicolaitans? Well, Acts 6 tells us, there's a, a time where uh, the apostles were like, okay, this church is getting really busy. We have a lot to do. There's conflicts. We need some people to help us. And so they decide they're going to create this office of deacon and appoint a bunch of deacons. And if you look in Acts 6, you go through this list of deacons. And the last one listed is a guy named Nicholas. And it says Nicholas was a proselyte of Antioch. Well, what does that mean he was a proselyte? Well, he was not only a convert from Judaism to Christianity, but before that he was a convert from paganism to Judaism. Right? So he had converted twice in his life, and so historians really believe that this guy had kind of kept one foot in that pagan world, even as he converted and then converted again. And according to early church writings, we see that Nicholas taught Christians where he was at that they did not need to separate from the pagan culture that they were living in. And that's not really in a cultural sense. He wasn't really saying, oh, you can't, you know, just befriend them. And he was really saying, no, you can continue to carry on in the pagan practices and the pagan worship. It, it's okay. It's all right for you to do that. And obviously it was not all right for people to do that, but that was the doctrine that he taught. So here we are in Revelation, and Jesus calls out and says, you guys, some of you are acting like you're holding to the teaching of Balaam, and some of you are holding to the teaching of Nicholas. So he gives us an Old Testament and a New Testament example of spiritual compromise, and we could really call that the doctrine of compromise. So do we face the doctrine of compromise today? Right? We're trying to take this series and take these passages and apply them to today. Is it really what we experience in our life, what we see around us in the world? I think the answer is obviously yes. And it's really been a constant throughout history. I don't think we're facing anything necessarily new today. But I thought it would be good for us to maybe go through and see what are some areas of compromise that we face today as Christians in the church. Now, I just want to give a disclaimer because as I talk about three examples here, these are going to be pretty touchy, right? Because they are areas of compromise. They are things that our culture is saying one thing, and the Bible says something different. And we're going to have to choose. And so, if this pushes some buttons for you, I apologize. I'm not, I'm not trying to upset or intimidate anybody. But, let's just hear what the Bible has to say. And I, I, I trust we're just going to look at it. Uh, through that lens. So the first one we're going to talk about is roles. The second one we're going to talk about is marriage. And the third one we're going to talk about is creation or origins. Alright, so let's talk about roles first. When I say roles, I'm talking about roles for men and women in society. Well, what does the Bible say about roles for men and women? I've got a couple of verses here. <clears throat> first one is in Ephesians 5. There's a couple of verses. It's talking about inside the marriage relationship. It says, Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Now, I'm going to talk about what those necessarily mean, but what's very clear from this passage is that women have 
a certain type of role, a certain type of wiring. And men have a certain type of role and a certain type of wiring. So, well, that doesn't seem fair. And I know submit and love, and we can have a whole discussion about that. We're not going to have that discussion today. But there's another verse in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. It says, there is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ. And so that means that we are all equal. There is no men or women is better than the other in Christ. We are equal. But God has set it up so that we have different roles and different parts to play. So what is the biblical view? The biblical truth is a complementarian view, which means that men and women are indeed equal in value, but we have been designed with unique roles and unique gifts that God wants us to display. Now what does the world say? In contrast to what the Bible says, what does our culture say? Our culture has a, we call an egalitarian view, which is essentially to say there is no distinction between men and women. We can't make any distinctions. That's what they say. Now, in the face of a cultural onslaught, I recognize this is incredibly difficult. Right? We face ridicule when you even sort of want to suggest that you hold to this position. Um, I've had a number of conversations over months and weeks and years, um, and gals have told me, hey, it's really, really hard to want to be a mom in this culture. It's really difficult to have that as a heart and say, that's what I want to go after. That's where I want to be. And I just want you to know, if you feel that way today, I truly believe being a mom is probably the most important job in the world. And so I honor you if that's really your heart. And I know that our culture says, oh, that's an important job, but maybe not the most important job. And there's other things maybe you should be doing But I want you to know, and Mother's Day is coming up here, and I won't be here for Mother's Day, but I just want to say this to all of you. We honor you as moms for the work that you do, for the sacrifices that you make for your kids. We're so thankful for that. But it's really so tempting, isn't it, to just embrace what the culture says. The culture says, yep, everybody's equal. You can do this, and you can do that, and you can all just be the same. But what's the problem What's the problem when we compromise on roles? Well, we lose the picture that God intended when he created gender of humans. Now, we could have a whole message on this. In fact, there's a couple messages, and I would encourage any of you who were not able to make it to the Frontline Conference in December. Um, John Meyer gave a couple of great uh, great teachings about this very idea. Um, and I've given the website here on the screen. You'd be welcome to check on that. In fact, all three of these things I'm mentioning today, there's some great thoughts on these just to get you thinking about how this is in different teachings. And um, I would encourage you to, to visit that webpage um, and take a listen. <clears throat> but I think we could boil it down to a simple question, which is, so if the Bible says God created us and had this complementarian view, this complementarian model, if that's his design, if that's his structure, and that structures for genders, and that, that influences church, and it influences life, and it influences family. If we go away from it, and we say, no, the culture knows better, you think that's going to go well for us? Or is that eventually going to go poorly for us? I would contend that it's going to go poorly for us. And so I think each of us has to decide... Well, I can go with what the Bible says or I go with what the world says. So are we going to be compromised on this issue or not? Second issue there is marriage. 
ties in a lot with roles. Here's a verse for you. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Unless you think that's a one-time deal, it occurs at least three places in the Bible. In Genesis chapter 2, it's God saying it through Moses. In Matthew, Jesus says it. He quotes that. And in Ephesians, Paul quotes it. So clearly this wasn't a one-time deal. This is a recurring theme that happens throughout the Bible. We see that there is a picture here, an intention. I think this is very clear. There's no argument about who is a man, who is a woman, what do they do. They come together to become one flesh. And again, that's a picture of God. And we could talk about that. That would be a whole another series as well. But that's what the Bible tells us. Here's another verse. Let marriage be held in honor among all. And let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Right? So here we see there's some standards. It's not just a, a man and a woman who come together. But it's they come together in commitment to each other alone. And that's for life. It's very clear. So the biblical truth in this is that marriage is one man and one woman committed for life. And again, that's an illustration of God. But what does the world tell us? The world tells us that marriage is only for as long as you want it to be. Or marriage really needs a trial run. Or marriage is really for any two consenting adults. Right? And that's difficult. And it's very tempting to compromise because there is an agenda out there that doesn't just disagree with this. It's an agenda that's really hostile towards this view. Right? Let's be clear. I'm not talking about politics. I'm not talking about how you vote. I'm not talking about what your opinion is or what your heart says or what your family does. I know those are all great discussions and we could have all the discussions. I'm trying to focus us in today on what does the Bible say about marriage. That's where I want to start and we want to talk about are we compromising that or not. So as we think about the folks who have an agenda in our culture, they promote a non-biblical message on marriage. It really seems clear to me as I look around the landscape that those folks are not really interested in stopping with being allowed, with having an allowance for a different viewpoint. The agenda really seems to have Christians in the Christian worldview in its crosshairs. What do I mean by that? Well, there's one example. You may have heard about it in the news this week um, of a couple in Oregon who run a bakery. And at this bakery, they had a, a customer, some customers who they'd served in a number of different ways. And these customers came in and said, we'd like you to bake a custom cake for our wedding. And the owners of the shop were Christians and they said, you know, the Bible influences our worldview and it would violate our conscience if we did that. We'll serve you in all of these other ways. We'll provide for you in all these other ways. But politely, we, we just, we can't do that for you. Well, this has gone on to trial and they've it's, uh, become something known in the culture. This couple who ran the bakery eventually have lost their business because of backlash against them for not violating their conscience. Then it went to court and a judge this week ruled that this couple owes 135 thousand dollars because they would not violate their conscience 
doesn't sound like just needing an allowance for something. That sounds like an agenda that wants to crush a worldview. It doesn't sound like fairness. It sounds like being vindictive. And I want to ask this sobering question. If this agenda does not stop at violating the conscience of polite business owners, is it going to stop at the door of the church? Is it going to stop at the door of your home? And look, every Christian should make a choice regarding their conscience. And again, I'm not going to debate here the right or the wrong or the view or how it enacts or whether you would bake a cake or not bake a cake. I don't care. Because you have a conscience and God has given you that conscience. What I care about is God's word. And what I care about is are we going to compromise what God has told us for the sake of culture? Because what happens when we compromise the biblical, the biblical stance on marriage? What's the problem when we compromise it? Again, it's very much the same as the last one. If God set up a structure, a design for marriage, and we go away from it, is it going to bring about good? Or is it going to bring about bad? We tend to believe it's going to bring about bad. I don't think that we know more than what God knows. And I think practically how this plays out is that if we depart from God's, God's definition, God's plan, God's structure for marriage, if we depart at one point, why wouldn't we depart at another one? If we were to say, okay, two consenting adults, why would we stop there? Why not three? Why not other types of relationships and, and organizations? And not even just that, what about divorce? What about commitment? What if we say, oh, yeah, marriage is fine. It's just a, as long as you want it to be. I think we begin to compromise on that point as well. A third example here I mentioned was creation or origins of the universe, right? What does the Bible say about creation and origins? Well, we don't have to look past the first verse of the first chapter of the first book of the Bible. It's right there. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So what is the biblical truth? It's very simple from that. God made the universe, he made the world, and he made you. But what is the world saying? Well, we all know what the world says. Any of us who've been to school, in any school, we know the world tells us that the universe evolved naturally by chance over billions of years. Now, again, we could debate, and there's different viewpoints, and, and that's fine. But what's the pressure the pressure is to say, oh, maybe God didn't make the universe, or maybe he didn't make it the way that he said he made it. Because I think that when we do that, the culture looks at us as fools. They say things like, oh, you're deniers of the facts. As if fallible human scientists who have their own agenda, you know, they aren't the ones who decide. They, they decide what's true, right? They're totally objective. I, I don't believe that. <clears throat> Recently, last fall, Rich and I had this opportunity. Uh, we were invited to this thing called the Perceptions Project. And at the Perceptions Project, they were getting together people from the faith community and people from the science community. And they wanted us to get together and talk and have a dialogue so that we could understand each other's viewpoints and positions better. And it, it was actually very fascinating. And I developed some relationships there. I thought it was a great time. But it really wouldn't... They didn't want to talk about origins. If anybody on the faith side said, well, what about creation? They were sort of immediately kind of ostracized, cast off. They were like, well, we'll, we'll talk to you about climate change, and we'll talk to you about other science things, but 
Don't you dare talk about that. Because if you say anything other than our worldview, you're a fool. So it was very interesting to kind of perceive that firsthand. But what happens? It would just be so easy to say, all right, we'll just compromise on this. What happens? What's the problem when we compromise on the issue of origins? Well, again, I said it was the first verse of the first chapter of the first book of the Bible. And so if God is wrong, if God is not right, if God is not trustworthy on the origin of the universe, which is stated in the first verse of the first book of the first chapter, if he's not right, if he's not trustworthy, can we trust him about anything else? See, Jesus clearly held to God as the creator. And we could put a bunch of verses up here that show that, God, that Jesus said, yeah, God created the world. God created the world. He agreed with all of that. So was Jesus wrong? If so, then I think the wholeness of his message falls apart because he was a liar. And I don't believe that's the case. So what happens overall when we embrace compromise? What happens to us? Well, the first thing I'll say is that we do not lose our salvation. That's the good news. You can be a Christian and you can compromise because salvation is not dependent on your view on those things. Amen? Amen. Amen? That's right. So that's good news. So I'm not saying, let's be very clear, I'm not saying you can hold any of those views that you can compromise from what the Bible said and not be a Christian. I don't think that's true. But what does it mean? I think what it really means is this. It means that we will have a, a weak and powerless faith. We go back to that passage. What happened to the Israelites They became weak and they were defeated. They were distracted. And the same thing can happen to us. I think that's the warning from Jesus is that we will live a worldly and defeated type of Christianity when we compromise. And I think there's another serious point here which is that Jesus doesn't just dislike compromise. He doesn't just, yeah, that's not good. He hates it. Jesus hates compromise. Do you want to be on the side of what Jesus hates? I sure don't. Why would you want to do that? And then, I think this passage even gives us a clear, here in Revelation, it gives us a clear message of what we do when we compromise. And that's that Jesus says, he's going to come and fight against us. Do you want the creator of the universe for you or against you? I certainly want him for me. So I think the, the summation to that is will you know and will you embrace the Bible and will you find truth in the Bible or are you going to find truth in the world? I think that's a question we all have to ask. Alright, so the third and final thing I want to talk about from this passage on Pergamum is this right here. I know where you live. Has anyone ever said that to you? I know where you live. This is Jesus. He knows where you live. He says, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. So, what was Satan's throne? What was, what was that about? Satan's throne? Is that symbolic? What's the deal? Well, it turns out it actually was a physical thing. Uh, in uh, Pergamon was a uh, dominant 
city there in Asia Minor in the first century. It was a, a center of arts and culture and religion. And there's a number of temples. And one of those temples was to Zeus, who was one of the top gods. Those of you who remember your, your sixth grade ancient history and religion class that you probably took. And so it was really important. This temple was very, very important to that culture. And in this temple, there was an altar. This was not just an ordinary altar. It was a special kind of altar. It had two wings, and in the middle was sort of a throne. Sometimes they had a a statue of a bull in there. And how do we know that that's true? Well, archaeology took place in the 1930s. This uh, temple was excavated, and they found this altar And they packed it up and shipped it home. Well, these archaeologists in the 1930s were from Nazi Germany. And they shipped it back to Berlin. And it sits today in a museum called the Pergamum Museum, interestingly enough, in Berlin. What does it look like? I've got a picture of it right here. I've actually been there. Scale-wise, you see kind of on the the sides of the wings these sort of frescoes that have people. Those are life-size people, so that kind of gives you the scale. And you can walk up and down on this throne, uh, this, this altar. But this, we believe this is what Jesus was talking about when he said where Satan's throne resides. And interestingly enough, as a side note, um, this was brought back to Germany in the 1930s. And as Hitler came to power, he modeled many of his platforms that he gave his speeches from on this very altar. Where he would stand in the middle it's a little creepy when I stood there and I, you read the information about it. You go, ah, why is this in a museum? <laughs> it was a little creepy when I was there. But... So that's the throne. Now, who is this Antipas guy? And Jesus refers to Antipas who was martyred there in Pergamum. Who was he? Well, we do have information on him too. He was a leader in Pergamum of the church in the first century. And historians really say, yeah, he had a lot of success in seeing people converted um, seeing demons cast out, um, and seeing the culture change in some ways. But um, you may remember um, in uh, Acts chapter 19, the same kind of thing happened in Ephesus. And there was a guy named Demetrius who made idols out of silver and stuff. And they all got real upset in that town. The same thing happened here in Pergamum, where they go, hey, you're affecting business. This is not good for business. It's not good for my religion. So they arrested Antipas there. In uh, 92 AD, he was arrested, and they said, all right, you either acknowledge the emperor is God, or we're going to kill you. And he was like, well, the emperor is not God, so I guess you're going to kill me. And that's what they did, and uh, it's believed that what happened was uh, on this very altar, in the, in the middle, they had a statue of a bull, a very large-scale statue of a bull out of bronze that was hollow, and they put him inside it. And they lit a fire underneath it. And they roasted him alive because of his faith. The year, again, was 92 AD. And four years later, John was on the island of Patmos and received this revelation from Jesus. So it it bears out in history. Now that's all very discouraging, but I think there's an encouragement here. Um, And the encouragement is that Jesus is pleased. See, he says that. You remain true to my name. He's pleased when we're true to God in the midst of evil and when we face persecution. You know, we talked about this a couple weeks ago when I was talking to you about Smyrna, the other church, just before this. We talked about persecution at great length and when we're not American-centric and we look around the world, we see violent persecution happening everywhere. 
Some of you may have caught the news here even in the last two weeks. Um, over there in Libya, there were 35 Ethiopian Christians who were marched out on a beach and executed because of their faith by the Islamic State. I did some more research. I found that in 2013, an organization called Open Doors International published a report. And they said that in 2013, around the world, 100 million Christians are facing persecution. 100 million. I can't even get my head around that number. And that's in 111 countries. This isn't in five countries or three countries, 111 countries. So we are facing persecution as a church globally. So Greg, what should I do? I live in America. What should I do? Well, the first thing we can do is pray. We mentioned this a couple weeks ago. Pray for the persecuted church. Pray for those who are in need. I thought that video from Compassion was great. There are those who are in need. We talked even a couple weeks ago about facing poverty. And there's an opportunity where you can reach out and help somebody who's in need, who's facing poverty. A second thing we can do is be faithful to God. And I think a question that's really convicting to me as I think about it is, am I faithful to God when I'm not persecuted? It's really easy to think about, oh yeah, the guys that come for me and say, do you believe in Jesus or not? But what about when they're not doing that? Am I being faithful to Jesus? Am I being true to my faith? Am I participating in the body of Christ regularly? Am I coming to church? Am I serving? Am I tithing? Do I speak up about my faith when I'm asked about it? Am I invested in the lives of my fellow believers and their needs, the things going on in their lives? Am I being faithful today where I'm at, where I'm not being persecuted? Because if you're not faithful when things are easy, can you expect to be faithful when things are not? It's convicting to me. I'm not sure that I can. And so on that, I want to leave you with another sobering question to think about, something for you to think about and chew on this week is, if, what if they did, whoever they is, what if they came to your neighborhood and they were looking for Christians to persecute, maybe they were looking for Christians to drag out in the street, take down to the beach and execute, would they know to come looking for you? What would be there in your life that would demonstrate that you have a faith in Jesus Christ? Do you have a faith that others can see? Do your actions flow from what is in your heart? Or have you embraced the doctrine of compromise? Have you compromised your faith in such a way with the world that you can't tell the difference between what you believe and what the world believes? Have you watered down your faith in such a way that is weak and powerless? That's something for us to think about here. And that's what I think the heart of this message from Jesus to Pergamum, and it's really a message to us, is that we should not accept the doctrine of compromise. I think Jesus wants us to stand firm in our faith. He wants us to be grounded in the truth of the Bible. And he wants us to do that even in the face of the cultural pressure 
and the fear of that persecution that we even talked about a couple weeks ago that could just be right around the corner for us. Let's pray. God, this is heavy stuff. God, it's heavy to think about people dying because of their faith. God, and I think that those people who were killed, those people who are facing those hundred million Christians facing persecution around the world, they're facing it, facing it because their faith is evident. God, that's convicting to me. Is my faith evident? God, I want my faith to be evident in such a way that I'm uncompromised. And God, we know that there's there's different ways to approach this and our consciences are in different places. But God, we always want to come back to your word and to the truth that you've given us in the Bible and stand upon that and develop our opinions and fix our conscience based upon what you've put in the word, not on what the culture says. And God, above all, we want to love others, Lord, who don't have the same opinion that we do, who don't share the same faith, who have not come to the same convictions that we have. God, and we do love those who do share different convictions. But God, we will not be compromised by the world. God, help us in this. In some ways, this is scary stuff, but Lord, we are encouraged We are so encouraged because we know that you are pleased when we're true to you in the face of all these things. Lord, help us in that. Help us as we go through this week that we would be encouraged and we would think about how we've compromised or how we might compromise or how we can be uncompromised. Thank you for that, Lord. I do thank you for your word and that you've given us truth. You've given us things that we can hold on to. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.